Welcome to Mates in Courage, brought to you by Good News Unlimited. Be part of a conversation between Graham Hood, champion fisherman, airline pilot and school dropout, and Ali Gonzalez, wannabe fisherman and holder of more useless degrees than you can poke a stick at. What could these two possibly have in common? The fact that neither of them have anything to hide. That's what. Mates in Courage. Take a listen. Oh, good day, Graham. Good day, Ali. What are you and I doing sitting here behind a couple of microphones? Looks like we're working together. Well, exactly right. And <laughs> and I remember meeting you 12 years ago. And you have to understand where I came from, and you do, but our listeners may not. The fact that, uh, you know, 12 years ago, I'd just come out of a very dark space where I was contemplating suicide. I had a raging pornography addiction. I had no belief in anything. And why did I find myself in a church listening to you deliver a sermon that really rocked my socks off? Um, that's a question I'll always ask. And I remember after that sermon, you standing at the entry door of the church and you had a, a suit and tie on and you looked very rigid yeah, and very formal. I remember. You remember. And you didn't. And I didn't. And <laughs> I walked up to you and you offered your hand um, for me to shake it and I pushed it aside and gave you a hug. And I remember it was like hugging a telegraph pole. <laughs> I don't want to embarrass you. But um, as a result of that, I, I don't know why, but I whispered in your ear that, uh, you don't know this, Sally, but I think you and I are going to work together one day. And that's amazing because here we are 12 years later. What a journey. And we've both been on a real journey since then. And you know what I thought, Graham? I wonder. I thought, well, that was weird. Did you? <laughs> I did, yeah. Did you? Yeah. But, you know, then we worked together closely after that. We worked on recovery programs and, we, you know, we tried to reach out to the community and do things. And I saw you changing while I was changing. So I was, uh, I tended to be heading more in, in a direction where you were at and you were coming more in a direction where I, were, where I was at. And it feels now after 12 years that we have reached a space where we really can work together because we've had a life experience together and shared and, and individually that can really be put to good use to help other people who may be listening to this. Yeah, and, and you know what, when, when we met 12 years ago, when, when you say we're sort of going in opposite directions, uh, you, you're kind of right because back then, with my suit and tie on, I actually thought I knew everything. And uh-huh. uh, as time has gone by, the years have gone by, I've, I've realised that I actually know less and less. You didn't know everything then. I thought you did. Yeah, so you thought I did and I thought <laughs> I did. But, I but did. I've just, I, I just realised gradually that I, I, know, I really do know less and less, but I know more about the important stuff. Yeah, and, and me too. And I think there's, that's what we all need to find. We need to find a truth that works in our lives. And, and that's been my journey for a long time. And I'm in a very, very good place in my life now. Uh, you know, 12 years on from the time that I was going to take my own life to this point now, I'm just so glad I didn't take my own life. Because um, the, wor- the work that I do, the work that you do, I mean, I'm a Qantas pilot. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you run a vital ministry that's reaching out to people all around the world. And most people would look at us and say they're the odd couple. I mean, you've got, you've got uh, degrees, you've got a doctorate, or one or two doctorates. Oh, one, one. One. Okay, well, easy. You've got a doctorate. Uh, I left school when I was 13. I had a criminal record by the time I was 17. What on earth would these two guys have in common? But there you are. 
what we've got in common is a life experience. And now we're the best of mates. We are. We share everything with each other, literally. We do. We yeah. do. Yeah. We do. And, and we, um, our journey has encompassed so many different aspects and so many different other people. And we've seen a whole bunch of people change. Mm-hmm. And I think because we've been on this journey of, um, of our own discovery and where we actually belong in the big scheme of things, mm-hmm. because I think most people, perhaps listening to our conversation, would wonder where they fit Mm. You know, life's like a great big jigsaw puzzle. and Everyone's so, wondering where they fit. Exactly. And where do they belong? And one of the reasons I didn't want to live anymore was because I didn't feel like I fitted anywhere and I didn't feel like I belonged. And now I do. Mm. And it's taken 12 years to get there. And it's so freeing and so uplifting. And it opens up so many doorways. So what I've discovered is that you and I both have a heart and that is to reach people who have been in dark spaces or who are in dark spaces. And I think that's a common agenda that we have, which makes us less like the odd couple than we would appear. Yeah, well, you're a high flyer, literally, mm-hmm. you know, in the you know Qantas and all that. Yeah. And uh, I just uh, walk along the ground. Uh, very, different, um, very different lives, people might think, and backgrounds. But my journey in, in so many ways... You know, in the core of what it means to be human has, has been so similar to yours mm. because 12 years ago when we first met, um, you weren't the only one who was broken. Mm. You know, I wore a suit and tie and, you know, I stood up the front and... Was that to cover up the cracks? That's it. I was as broken yeah. as you were. Yeah. You know, you don't have to have suicidal thoughts to be, to be broken. No. Um, but aren't we all as broken as one another in so many ways? Yeah, and, you know, and I've, I've realised that most people go through life and they don't understand mm. who they are. They go mm. through life uh, trying to cover up who they really are and the reality of their issues and their brokenness. Yeah. You know, I did it with a, with a suit and tie, you know, because I was in business and, you know, wore it to church and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, other people do it with, you know, alcohol, drugs, um, overwork, whatever it is. Yeah. But, yeah, I was searching for my place in life too. Mm. And over the last 12 years, it's funny, you're meant to have it all worked out by the time you, you know, you, I don't know, you hit 20 or 30, whatever it is. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to be coming up to 52, just coming up behind you. And you're a fair way behind me. I'm what? coming up 66. You're kidding. Oh, thank you, Ellie. I'll, I'll, the check's in the mail. Oh. It's a sense you stopped dyeing your hair. It's confused me. But I'm still, you know. That's another topic. Yeah. But I'm still, um, yeah, I'm still on that journey. Yeah. And, uh, and perhaps that's the journey of being human, you know, mm. discovering who you really are, your place in the world, what it, you know, what it means to have real relationships and yeah. being authentic. Yeah. And, and I'm not there, but I feel so much comfortable more comfortable in my own skin than I did 12 years ago. And how, what do you attribute that to? I think it's self-awareness mm-hmm. that has come through the knocks and blows of life. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when we met 12 years ago, I'd never had a close family member die. Yeah. You know, uh, since then, uh, my father committed suicide. Mm-hmm. It was very that was very hard yeah um particularly because he and i were estranged uh my family uh split not my wife but my you know my, my parents my brother yeah um you know the only family i have here because we were an immigrant family mm-hmm. um and, and so they sort of i was sort of disowned um and 
you know, all the support mechanism, everything that I relied on for my identity got stripped away, you know, lost my businesses, you know, uh, I used to think I was a business high flyer. Yeah. Uh, some people thought I was, well, you know, I really wasn't. Most yeah. of business is fake, especially when you're in entrepreneurial stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's about pretending. I used to swan around, uh, uh, you know, traveling the world with uh, fake watches from Hong Kong because I couldn't afford the real stuff, you know. Yeah. It was fun buying them. I've got some yeah. great stories about that, the back yeah. streets of Hong, Hong Kong and Shanghai. Um, and then, you know, my religious life got torn apart too because I depended on my identity uh, on church as well. Like, who am I? Well, I'm a Christian. I belong to this denomination, you know, da da da, da. I'm and, an elder in the church. Yeah, I'm an elder in the church, yeah. wear a suit and tie. But yeah. then, you know, revelations of uh, child sexual abuse really close to me, you know, in my own church and mm-hmm. and uh, what happened to me when I found out about those things and how I got spurned by the church and mm-hmm. just in case I told someone, this is, now I'm going back, uh, I'm actually going back before the, uh, when I met you, but yeah. I still was processing all this stuff and I learned that I couldn't trust, ultimately I couldn't really you know, my family wasn't who I thought it was. My church wasn't who I thought it was. You know, uh, even I wasn't who I thought it thought I was. And so I've had to, uh, I've had to grow up, I guess, and and discover, you know, who I am and what I'm going to base my life on. I want to I want to share with you what I believe that the School of Hard Knocks offers us. And we're all we're all enrolled in the School of Hard Knocks, whether we feel like we are or not, or whether we want to be or not, we are. Because I believe every man has at least half a dozen major life-changing events in his life. Uh, Michelle and I, between the two of us, since mm. we met 12 years ago, have had 60. And it's made us very resilient. Well, did you count them? We, we sat down one day and counted all the major events that happened in our life since we'd met. And um, we've had 60 of those. Now, um, the thing that we have to remember is that Knox... Uh, if they happen to our body, give us a bit of scar tissue. Mm. That's, there's resilience in that as well. And I often talk to men about uh, about their value and their worth. And, mm. and often I'll say, um, I'm going to give $10 away to anybody who wants it. And I say, put your hand up if you want $10 from me. And a few people do. Mm. And then I pull two notes out of my pocket. One is crushed and, and battered and dirty. Mm-hmm. And the other one is crisply minted straight out of the, out of the mint in Canberra. And I walked down the aisle to the person who put their hand up first and I said, there you go, you can have whichever one you want. They always take the freshly minted clean one. Yeah. I then go on to ask them, does that $10 note that you've taken buy more petrol than the one that's all battered and torn? No. Mm. If you were going into battle as a man, and thankfully we've never had to face war yet really um, Mm. in our lifetime, but if you were going into battle, would you rather serve a lieutenant that was leading your your squad or your um, your platoon, who had a who had scars all over him and who was battered and, and torn from battle experience, or someone who's just come straight out of the military academy? I know who I'd rather be with. The things that you've been through, the things that I've been through, give us an experience that makes us valid and makes us worth something. And that's a part of growing old that I really love. There's a mellowness that comes with getting old. Yeah, speak for yourself. Yeah, look, I'm about to get two <laughs> knees replaced next week. You know, I'm feeling the, I'm feeling the, uh, the yeah. pinch of my age. Yeah, okay. But that comes with a sense of absolute mellow that also comes out of the experience of, well, back then I didn't deal with that very well, that situation very well. I'm dealing with it a whole lot better now because I know that I have the resilience, the strength, 
and perhaps gained wisdom from those knocks to take it to the next step without freaking out like I used to. And I make better decisions as, as a result. And I think that's what you've been doing. Yeah, and you don't live life miserably, mm. you know, wondering. You actually you reach a point where you're at peace. Yep. You can enjoy life. Yep. And uh, that's certainly where I'm, you know, where I'm starting to, to step on. Um, Is it all right if I touch on something with you? Um, that's I'll, all right. No one's listening. <laughs> no one's listening. It's just you and me. <laughs> what I want to ask you is, um, what effect did your dad's suicide have on you? Yeah. Uh, see, the, yeah, Graeme, there's all sorts of reasons why we don't talk about stuff in life, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, aren't there? Um, uh, because you're worried about what other people think and there's relatives and, and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah. But what effect did it have on me? It... In a sense, uh, it confirmed to me uh, what you know what I struggle with within me, you know, which is not true, but this deep sense of worthlessness mm-hmm. and uh, valueless that I'm good for nothing, mm-hmm. um, because uh, that was you know the final messages that you know the final talks I had with my father. That's what he was telling me, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that's what he had told me in different ways all my life. I could never live up to his expectations. Mm-hmm. And when I married someone that uh, he didn't agree with, then he, he disowned me. And then uh, at, at the funeral, his, uh, his eulogy um, was really a condemnation of me at, at so many levels. The people who were there wouldn't have known it. Mm-hmm. You were there, weren't you, Graham? At your dad's funeral? Yeah. No, I wasn't. Oh, you weren't? No. no I was at your mum's. At my mum's. Yeah, that was that was fun too, eh? Mm. Um, and so it sort of was kind of like the final nail in my co- in, the, in the coffin uh, that, you know, that slowly brought up so many issues to the surface in, in my life to the point that uh, I realised I had to deal with them um, because... It's not that they were inhibiting or stopping my effectiveness in life and, mm-hmm. and what I, you know, my achievement, because, you know, I can always achieve in work and business and whatever, but it was killing me on the inside. Yeah. You know, it's like I was schizophrenic. The, pe- the person, the people that other people saw was not who I was on the inside. Um, so you'd taken ownership of your dad's opinion of you. Yeah. That's, uh-huh. a, that's always, a, that's, but I think that is a really, that's not me. That's everyone. That's right. We all take ownership uh, of other people's opinion on us. Of us, we all think that the person that we see reflected in the faces of others back at us is who we are. Do you think your dad may have been looking at your life, his son, through the knothole of his own pain? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I. That was the filter that he was looking at you through. Yes, that's right. And, you know, I, I loved my dad and he was a very good man yeah. at so many levels. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that my dad was able to overcome uh, the issues that he faced growing up. Mm-hmm. We, all, we all have them, you know, yeah. whatever they, they might be. His were particularly traumatic, you know, growing up through the Spanish Civil War yeah. um, and seeing atrocity after atrocity, uh, starvation and hunger and and mass murders and and uh betrayed by religion and politics and Mm -hmm. and whatnot betrayed and hated by his family you know Mm -hmm. um attempted you know 
suicide attempts even as a child and so you know there's no way i'll ever blame my father i can't i mean how could you how could i yeah so i I can't blame him for uh for anything now had you but i think had you attached blame that would have had a totally different impact on your outcomes now oh yes absolutely um it would have but i'm still thinking of your earlier question i think maybe deep within him i mean there's two issues my father learned that the way to survive is to control everything and that's Mm -hmm. he wanted to control me and ultimately i made my own decisions about life that was he he would have had no control over his childhood no that's why and the but the other issue at a deeper level that was even deeper than that is the issue that he loved me i know he loved me Mm -hmm. and he wanted to protect me uh, from the things that had hurt him in his life and he saw that I was too sensitive and uh, too easygoing and, you know, I didn't uh, obey authority, you know, in, uh, you know, as I should, uh, which were the things that for him were the things that he thought would, you know, uh, protected him, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't harsh. I was always soft-hearted and, and uh, gentle and, and loving with people. So, yeah, I never thought about that before, but there you go. That's a, that was a powerful question. Did you do you uh, did you feel any anger or resentment towards him for taking his life? No, I've never felt anger, but confusion and you know, and uh, it's just at so many levels. I, I guess the person I was, I wouldn't say angry or resentful at, but the person that I was most disappointed with uh, was God, mm-hmm. and the reason is because for years I'd prayed that God would soften His heart and and that somehow we'd be reconciled and him you know committing suicide put the nail in the coffin literally yeah. on that so and, and you know it's not how it's meant to work you know when you you're a good person supposedly you know good inverted commas and uh you know you pray you go to church you know you don't steal and you know uh, whatever you're meant to get your prayers heard sometimes especially if they're big ones you know it was the main thing the yeah. main game for me yeah and uh god didn't answer that so at a deep level that I didn't even get, I was really disappointed with God as well. And, and that's something that uh, I've had to deal with. But I, I think that's something everyone has to deal with. I mean, you know, most, you know, Joe Blow out there um, has, has probably dealt with that because, you know, that's why he doesn't believe there is a God because he's disappointed that the God he was told about in Sunday school, you know, isn't, that doesn't seem to match the way that life really is. But what if the trauma and the tragedy of your dad's suicide was then turned around by God to sharpen you in ways that would help you be so much more powerful to achieve greater results in your life and in the lives of others. I think quite often we we tend to have a picture of what God should do. And this is what I've come across a lot in, in the last 12 years. Sure. I've had an image of, you know, if I do this, if I do the right things, if I say the right things in prayer, all that sort of stuff, that God will God will fulfill this picture I have of his outcomes in my life. Mm. And I've now realised that his will for my life is much more important than my requirements of God. Much more important. And you know that because that's where you're at. I know you're there. Mm. So for me, um, I, un- I love joining the dots in my own life and in other people's lives. And I can see a tapestry being woven around incidents and events that have been traumatic and, and seem to not have God in them anywhere that have made my life so much more meaningful. And I thank God for I thank God for everything I went through to get me to a point where I'm at now. The the 
you know, I went, I'm, I was talking about my own suicide. Mm. And uh, I went to see a movie last night that really touched my heart because the, the movie, the movie, I won't mention the name of the movie, but it ends with a man hanging himself in a garage. Mm. And um, well, that cuts close to home. I know it does. And the, one of the final scenes is this guy walks up to the garage door and he's got everything ready and he pulls the garage door down in front of his face. And that's the last time anyone sees him. Mm. And I realised last night how close I came. Mm. I mean, I came... I'd set a date for my suicide because it was an anniversary and I wanted it to have meaning. I wasn't going to leave a note. I wanted it to have meaning to the people who... I wanted to feel the pain of my action. Wow. There were people I wanted to punish. You know, how stupid is that? I was going to take my own life to teach somebody a lesson. And, that, you know, but that's life. That's what we do sometimes, and it's crazy. And then all of a sudden at the 11th hour, an amazing event happened that turned my life around. I met, um, I met my wife, Michelle, who you know well, mm-hmm. um, a survivor of childhood sexual abuse within the church, um, a psychologist, a lady with a law degree, a psych degree, a nursing degree. One of the most amazing women I know. And me too. And, and actually, she's one <laughs> yeah. of the most amazing people I know. Mm. She's got more courage than than a dozen men I've met put together. Mm. And she she stepped into my life and turned that around at the 11th hour. Um, and about four years after we met, my daughter, who was a flight attendant in Qantas, was, was overnighting in Brisbane, and, and she came down to the Gold Coast and had an overnight with us. And we were sitting in the lounge room together and she, um, we were reminiscing about her childhood and things like that. And um, she teared up and, and I said, what is it, honey? She said, Dad, I've never seen you so happy. Mm. And I said, yeah, I said, I've never been this happy. I said, you know how close, you don't know how close I came to suicide. Mm. She said, Dad, for two years I dreaded the phone ringing because I thought someone was going to tell me that you'd taken your own life. Wow. And she knew. And I said to her, what would you have thought or done if I had? She said, I'd have hated you for the rest of my life. I couldn't have, I couldn't have, I would never have been able to justify why you would take such a step that would destroy my faith in everything. Mm. And we cried together and hugged together and I'm mm. so glad. But, you know, I was racing towards the date of my own end. Like I'm looking forward to having my knees replaced next week mm-hmm. because I'm sick of the pain. Yeah. And it was the same with my life. I was sick mm. of the pain. I'd set the date. I wasn't going to leave a note. I wanted the insurance company to pay out. Da 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 da. And, and uh, I was racing to that date with enthusiasm. And at the last minute, something miraculous happened. I met Michelle. Everything turned around in my thinking. Mm. I found myself walking into a church. And here I am now talking to. Uh, I've been talking to men for the last twelve years about these issues mm. with great passion. Um, you told me. You told me about this. 12 years ago. Yeah, I did. And that you were happy that, you know, uh, how, how glad you were that uh, th- that last minute thing happened and you didn't go through with it. Yeah. You're telling me about it today. Uh, mm-hmm. How, in terms of your journey, yeah, uh, I'm sure that you, you process it differently today. Mm-hmm. You've, somehow you've, you've grown than what you did back then. Yeah. Well, that, that's come from the benefit of what, what God has done in my life since then. Mm. In fact, I see God's hand in my life way back when I didn't even believe in him. I used to walk around showing the finger to God for the first 50-odd years of my life, you know. Um, <laughs> churches were horrible places. Yeah. 
Um, to be honest, I don't know that churches are that much better sometimes, but, you know, that doesn't matter. It's about the people. It's always about the people. Well, that is what church is, people. That's, church is people. It's not it's a building. Not, it's, it's not, not a denomination. No. It's not all of those things. Right. It's about a, it's about a people in relationship with a God who truly loves them, mm-hmm. who don't believe the lies about God, that God mm-hmm. is a torturer, a punisher, a vindictive dictator. And that's who my God is. Mm-hmm. One of the turning points for me was I stepped into a church I wanted to get involved in that church. I wanted to have faith. But I didn't have a clue who Jesus was. And I thought, everybody's talking about Jesus is coming again and da-da-da-da-da. I'm thinking, what? Well, I don't get this. So I had to understand, for me, I had to paint a picture of Jesus for me. And I spent about six months wondering and reading every red-lettered sentence or phrase I could find in the Bible. They're the good bits. The good bits, yeah. <laughs> and and I built this picture of I built this picture of Jesus, God. Yeah. That made me feel incredibly humble. Mm. And the humility was around the fact that some man I had never met two thousand years before I was born died the most excruciating death so a filthy porn addict like me could have a second chance. Mm. And that's when I was smitten with the notion of what God really is all about. And that Mm. turned my perspectives around. That made me, I've always been a questioner. I remember saying to the pastor, who was a good friend of you and I, uh, Mm. Jeff Donovan. um, He's a good man. He's a great man. And, And I remember saying to him, you know, you want to take me through Bible studies and everything. Well, just know that I'm not going to come easily to this. Yeah, and he took up the challenge, yeah. and I've never really come easily to it. I, I really think that we're required to ask questions. Yeah. We're not meant to take everything on blind faith. God wants us to inquire, sure, as to the meanings of His texts, as as to the meanings of His intent for our lives, mm-hmm. and um, that inquiry for me has taken me into a much broader arena mm-hmm. um, and a safer place where I really know who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm His boy. He's my dad. That's it, pure and simple. Everything else is just a growing relationship. Everything else is just a father and son relationship that struggles from time to time, but it never fails. It never fails from the father's mm. perspective because the father's love is so strong, yeah, so powerful, so immensely real. It has so much integrity that it's only me when I when I'm when I feel distant. It's only me that's wandered mm. off. He never moves. Mm. It's like you've grown up in a house that you were born in and, and your parents live there. Yeah. You may go all over the world, but you know that if ever you need sanctuary, that's where you go if you haven't yeah. been abused in your family. That's where you go. You know the address. Yeah. I know where God lives. He lives in my heart when I open it to him. Yeah. That's been the big opening for me anyway. And and you know, you didn't go through with your plan to uh to kill yourself. No. But in your life and my life, something's had to die inside of us. Yeah. So, so that we can grow. Um, and, you know, before you ask me what it is, I reckon it's what what we develop within us as we grow up. Yeah. It's the utter self-reliance and distrust of others. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing that holds us back, that, you know, the barriers we put around our lives, the fakeness, all of that has to die. Um, you know, ego, in a sense, uh, uh, selfishness you know the fact that it's not mm-hmm. about it's not just about me and and I think we've both been through that that journey um, so in a sense we go back to being boys 
you know, well, when we, do. When we, we do. trusted our, 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 our fathers, you know, implicitly, you know, and we knew that not everything was right with the world, yeah. but it was going to be fine, yeah. you know? And even Jesus yeah. said, I think, come to me as little children. Mm. Come to me with an open mind. And, um, and, and for me, that's been an, an integral part of my journey. I, 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 I was saying to Michelle on the way here this morning that um, uh, I take, I take uh, a lot of things at face value to start with and I always seem to uh, give any idea, notion or individual the benefit of the doubt until I feel a need where I have to do a bit more research into the topic or the person mm-hmm. and then I make a, a, a better decision. I try not to judge people straight up. Yeah. And I feel the only time I should ever look down on anybody is when I'm helping them up because I've looked up at a lot of people who've been helping me up and it's a it's a very heartwarming view. Um, so at the end of the day, I think, I think there's a realisation that all those things you talked about, the ego, um, the strict ideas, I think we're all addicts. Um, and, and I watched a YouTube clip the other day which, which highlighted that we're all addicted to our own belief. Mm. of what things are and most of those beliefs are based on fear mm-hmm. and the things that we fear are those organizations uh, situations that seek to control our thought mm. and our actions uh, because there's always a consequence if we step outside with an inquiring mind if we step outside those parameters or frameworks that have been set up then there'll, there'll be punishment and there's a consequence mm. and and when it comes to faith a lot of churches build that idea around mm-hmm. the notion of God as being a dictator God. Mm-hmm. He, he is keeping track of your wrongs. He's watching. He's watching, and you will have to pay. Yeah. That's not who God is. I think that's the lie about God that's, that Satan perpetrated from, from the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. But anyhow. Oh, well, I, I'm glad that God is watching now. Me too. I wasn't glad he was watching before, but now I know he's always watching because he loves me. Yeah. You know? And even when I'm doing the wrong thing, he's still watching but you know what? He's not judging. You've he's, got a son. He's still loving me. You've got a son. Yeah. And a daughter. Yeah. Um, have they ever ever strayed off a pathway that you would rather they didn't stray no, off? No, never, 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 never. They're perfect children. No. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you know the the thing is, it doesn't matter if they do or they don't. Yeah. We just love them anyway. We just love them, and we hope that they will make better choices. And, and I had to get to a stage in the in the. Um, upbringing of my kids where mm. I had to accept that they were no longer kids that they mm. were adults and I'd done everything that I could in the time that was available to me and a lot of that wasn't good but I'm, I'm happy with the notion that I've given them enough of myself back then to help them make the right choices mm. and I've also done what my dad did for me my dad wasn't the best father in the world he was a great guy but he wasn't the best father in the world but the gift my father gave to me were his mistakes because I got to learn from the mistakes he made. He never tried to hide them. Mm. And in a way, he validated me as a man because I was able to grow through his mistakes. And I really treasure that in my dad. I love that in my dad. Well, tell me, tell me about your dad. My dad was um, born in 1918. So he would have just been 100 if had he still lived. He'd come out of the mm-hmm. tail end of the Great War. Mm-hmm. Um, he went through the Great Depression. His mother was a waitress in a cafe at Circular Quay in Sydney during World War One, and his father was a sailor on an American battle cruiser. Wow. And he went ashore to have shore leave, fell in love with my grandmother, got on the ship to sail out of the heads, Sydney heads, in his dress whites, and they all lined the deck in their dress whites. Mm-hmm. And the ship had sailed away from, um, from Pinchgut in Sydney Harbour 
and he was looking at Circular Key disappearing and he threw his kit bag overboard as a life raft and yeah. he dived over into shark-infested waters <laughs> and paddled back to Circular wow. Key and proposed to my grandmother. So, But he went on then to... That's impressive. It was, you know, and my, my uncle was born as a result of that and they had this beautiful love that everyone yeah. everyone thought was amazing. And uh, But, of course, this was a time of war, so my grandfather immediately became a deserter as a result oh, of jumping yeah, overboard. Yeah. So he was in trouble in America if ever he went back there. And it was after my uh, my uncle was born that my my grandfather revealed to my grandmother that he was still he was married in America. <laughs> so he was a bigamist. It gets better. It gets better. And uh, it got to a stage where she said, you've got to sort all this stuff out. So she got very angry and there's, mm. there's a copy of their uh, marriage certificate at home that's been torn up and retaped together because uh, she tore it up. And he went back to America and he said, I'm going back to the States and I'm going to dissolve my marriage and come back and remarry you. Well, the minute he landed in San Francisco, got off the ship, he was arrested for desertion in a time of war and spent seven years in Fort Leavenworth military prison. After that, he came out, he he dissolved the marriage, came back to Australia and uh, my father was then born. And when my father was 14, I believe my grandfather committed suicide. He was the life of the party. He was a wonderful man. Everyone loved him, but he really struggled to make ends meet for the family. He was an iron moulder and they lived in a, a bag humpy in Lithgow in, in New South Wales in freezing conditions and they had to steal food yeah. and coal to survive. So my dad had my dad was effectively fatherless at a time when he really needed his dad. Mm-hmm. And then four years after he uh, his dad committed suicide, my dad was in a uniform in the Middle East fighting in the Second World War and he served uh, two and a half years there and then came back and served two and a half years in Papua New Guinea as an engineer. And one of the great things that I remember in recent history was I flew a uh, Qantas Boeing 737 from Brisbane to Port Moresby and as I came on to final approach at the runway at Port Moresby, the the, um, air traffic controller uh, said, uh, Qantas uh, 64, welcome to Jackson Field, you're clear to land. And I thought, Jackson Field was named after a squadron leader, a 77 squadron up in New Guinea during the Second World War. And I remember my dad built Jackson Field. He was an army engineer and he drove a bulldozer that built the airstrip that I was about to land on 75 years later. And I puddled up. I've got to admit, you know, there were windscreen wipers going on the inside (laughs) of my glasses as I puddled up. And I told my passengers that it was an emotional moment that I could, if I could only say to my dad that... um, the strip he built 75 years ago still works and his son just put a big Boeing onto it. I would have loved to have done that. But he was a man who um, who married my mum mm. at a very young age, then went off to war. Mm. Her emotional needs weren't being met. She was a victim of childhood sexual abuse at the hands of her father. Um, she had a horrible upbringing. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a beautiful mother who, who she loved dearly, who was actually, I believe, murdered by her father when she revealed the sexual abuse. So there's no amount of love in the world that can make my mum feel loved mm. Mm. Um, because she felt to blame for everything. So she she was, you know, um, I don't disrespect her by saying this because I understand the reason she did it, but she, I now look back on her as I deal with addicts through our Recovery Road program. Uh, she was a chain-smoking alcoholic with a sex addiction mm-hmm. and, and it was all because of the pain that she went through. And uh, she did the very best that she could. But their marriage was turmoil after turmoil after turmoil. They split up. Uh, my dad remarried another lady. And um, and I remember 
going through this love-hate relationship with my dad for many years. Uh, I never felt he was there. I always wanted to go fishing and he never... He, I think three or four times in my whole life did he ever take me fishing. And ah, well, we've got a similar story there. We've got a similar story. And um, and yeah. my dad... My dad um, but he loved. He really loved and he loved outwardly. Mm. He wore his heart on his sleeve and I'm grateful for that. And so I, it's a train wreck in your family on all sides. It is. I'm sort of glad you made it here, Graeme. I'm glad I made it too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the thing, the thing that really got me was when I, 12 years ago when we met, I mm. declared to my dad who I'd, who I'd uh, reformed my relationship with and brought him up to the Gold Coast to live with us. Yeah. I, I declared... I met him. You met him, Snowy. Mm. Lovely guy. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember telling him one day that I was, I was joining a church and I was going to give my life to God. And he was really angry because his brother became a very uh, orthodox Christian of a, of a particularly powerful sect years ago, and it destroyed his whole family. And, what do you mean orthodox? Oh, every, they, they were, you know, people in, the, in this particular sect weren't allowed to watch television or listen to radio. You weren't allowed to have pets, and oh. elders of the church would go around to people's houses on Saturday and shoot their dogs. Wow. Um, it was pretty orthodox, excuse me. <laughs> when I told my dad that I was becoming a Christian, he just freaked out. He just said, no, this is you can't do this, you're going to become a wowser and, mm. you know, you're going to become rigid and horrible and, and uh, I don't want you to go down this road. Don't waste your life. And, and we had a very heated conversation for a while. And then I just went on with it and he, my dad witnessed it from the edges, from the margins and um, eventually he had to go into a nursing home mm. and um, I'd visit him in a nursing home quite often and every Friday when I had Fridays off, I'd bring him home to our property at, at Gavin. And he'd sit on the veranda and watch me do the landscaping and mow the lawns and all that sort of stuff. And every hour or two, I'd come up and have a cup of tea with him. And I'd walk him around the veranda of our home. We had the big Queenslander. And he mm. was in the wheelchair. And I'd walk him around. And every time I walked yeah. him past the kitchen window, I made a point of leaning down to him and saying, I really love you, Dad. Mm. And he would always say, and I really love you too, son. And uh, this particular day, he said just sit and talk with me for a minute. And he was reminding me of things that I grew up with and things that I did in my growing up and things that he did and didn't do. And I looked at him and I said, Dad, what are you, um, what are you doing? Are you, you sound like you're reliving your life in slow motion replay. And he said, I, I actually am. Hmm. I said, you're trying to tick all the boxes, aren't you? And he said, I actually am. Um, but he said, I want to tell you something, son. You are 10 times a better husband, father, and man than I ever was. And he looked wow. me straight in the eye and he said, I thank God for that. Not like, oh, thank God for that. It was, yeah. I thank God for your changes. Mm. Now, I'd never opened a Bible to preach out of to my father. Mm. My father got that I was being the Bible I was reading. Mm. And he liked the changes it made mm. in me. And I said to him, well, you know what that's done for my life. It's mm. not too late for you, Dad. Are you mm. prepared to accept Jesus? Mm. And he said, I am. And three months later, he was dead. And I got to go to his funeral. And you did. Thank you for that. It was an honour to have you there. And and I remember walking, we were called to the nursing home just as my dad was about to die. Mm. And we walked into um, we walked into the, the room he was at. And my mother was sitting, my stepmother was sitting beside the bed with the palliative care nurse. And my dad was looking at the ceiling and he was opening his mouth like a goldfish looking at the light in the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And he was apparently comatose. And the nurse said to, to us as we got in the room, she said, oh, he's lapsed into a coma. He won't mm -hmm. hear you now. 
And Michelle, being a registered nurse, says, don't you believe that? Mm -hmm. He knows you're here. And when he heard me talking, I saw his eyes flicker towards Mm -hmm. the door. Mm -hmm. And I walked over to him, and he had a thick crop of beautiful snowy hair and vivid blue eyes. And I, I looked into his eyes, and I said, you're scared, aren't you, mate? And he sort of moved his eyes in a way that he was in agreeing with what I said. Mm. And I stroked his hair and I looked into his eyes and I said, don't worry, mate, just one more sleep. The next time you open your eyes, you're going to be young, you're going to be with Jesus and it's going to mm. be great. And we'll be together. Mm. So just one more sleep, Dad. And, um, I, and I then said to him, I want you to know that I could not have had a better father for my life and my makeup. Mm and my DNA mm. than you. You were the best father I could have had and you were the best man I could have modelled myself after. Now, he was meant to be in a coma, Ellie, and his whole body trembled when I said mm. that and his right arm rose from beside his bed mm. and it was shaking and trembling mm. and he moved it up and he placed his shaking hand over my face and I looked at him and tears were streaming down his cheeks and it was then I knew that every time my father ever told me that he loved me, he actually meant it. He really meant it. He really, really meant it. And I doubted for years that he did. And I, I now look on that phase of my journey with my mm-hmm. dad. I recognised that I needed my dad when I was approaching puberty mm. to tick my licence, to say mm. that I was validated, mm. that I had everything I needed to be a good man, and then I could go forward. He didn't actually do that. He didn't know to do that. That's something fathers Mm. and sons should experience Mm. together. And then I realized that I needed him as I journeyed into manhood Mm. to tell me I I had what it took to be a good man. And he needed me at the end of his journey to tell him that he had been. Mm. It's circular, Ellie. You know what I feel when you you tell me that? What? Because you hadn't told me that before. Haven't I? I thought I told you that. Not in... Not everything. Mm-hmm. It's probably wrong, but uh, I feel jealous because mm-hmm. I never had the chance to hear that from my father. Yeah, and I never had the chance to say that to him either. Yeah. Um, well, there's mm. there's a contrast between us now because I know my um, there's there's a whole box full of pain that I no longer have because God allowed me that experience with my dad Mm. and my dad was open to it at the end and I'm so grateful to that and 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 so I feel really gifted and honored that I've had that experience and I'm very lucky but what it what it does for me now is it makes any effort I make to reach out to men Mm -hmm. doubly important Mm. because I'm hoping that men will hear this conversation now and say we've really got to get it sorted with our sons we really have to make sure that mm. they know that we've given them the best we can and we need to surround them with a community of good men. And Ellie, we live in a world, sadly, where mm. women are raising children. Mm-hmm. There are so many single-parent situations now. And what we're finding is we've got perpetual adolescence that's, creep, that's crept in since World War Two. Women are saying, he's got a grown man's body, but he's acting like a 12-year-old. It's like there are so many adult men who've got their childhood psychology stuck in their psyche and they can't get past it mm-hmm. because they haven't been taken through a validation process to get them to a place where they can actually act like I men. can I can see it yep and mm-hmm. we see it everywhere in our ministry and the work that we do at Mission Serenity 
we see it across the board in in news items the increase in domestic violence Mm -hmm. is spurred by a frustration of men who don't know how to be men Mm -hmm. that's pure and simple because fathers have been taken out of the woodwork and been taken out of the equation and i again you know i'm probably being selfish here making it about me but you know you can't help but not reflect on it for yourself yeah you know i did say i'm jealous but i'm okay you know it's been a struggle no it is a struggle but i'm okay yeah i i fit into your description uh, as you did you know in in terms of being a man i've seen you growing who didn't that. know how to be a man yeah and i didn't know that i didn't know how to be a man i thought most That's the way it's meant to be. Most of us you know, don't. We all know. go through life with blinkers on, yeah. with so little self-awareness. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know about you. I think I need to grab a tissue and wipe my eyes a little bit and maybe come back to the conversation. Great talking to you, Ollie. I love you heaps, mate. <laughs> Mates in Courage, brought to you by Good News Unlimited. To sign up for Graham and Ellie's daily spiritual message emails about recovering from addictions, hurts and hang-ups, visit goodnewsunlimited.com. To book Graham and Ellie for talks, get in touch at the same website. And if you're troubled by anything you've heard, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or an equivalent service in your own country. Thanks for listening. Mates in Courage. Catch you in the next episode.